Take a network break. Settle in with your favorite virtual donut and join us for our weekly review and analysis of IT news. We've got stories on VMware, Google, Cisco, Broadcom, and more. We're sponsored today in part by Palo Alto Networks. To find out what's next in SASE, sign up to watch the Palo Alto Networks SASE Converge 2021. It's an on-demand webinar. We'll hear from leading voices in networking and security, get details on the impact of SASE technology and more. It's all at sasseconverge.paloaltonetworks.com. We're also sponsored by IT Pro TV. You can start or grow your IT career with online training from IT Pro TV. Learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job. Visit itpro.tv slash networkbreak to get 30% off all plans. Just use the promo code networkbreak at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash networkbreak and use that promo code networkbreak at checkout. And then stay tuned after the news. We have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation. We're going to talk with a credit union about how it deployed an SD-WAN and branch networking using Aruba ESP. And Aruba is our sponsor for that tech bite. All right, let's get to the news first. VMware is expanding container security capabilities of its Carbon Black software. It's adding protection for containers at runtime. Yeah, so the Carbon Black acquisition is from 2019. Do you remember back that far, Drew? That feels like ancient history at this point. I, I don't know. No. That's too far. I looked yeah. it up, just in case you think I'm some superhuman person, which I'm not. <laughs> uh, Carbon Black was a cloud-native endpoint security software that is designed to detect malicious behavior and to help prevent malicious files from attacking an organization. So it was an endpoint security. And what they're doing yep. here is applying the endpoint security to scanning containers. Now, if I remember rightly, around about the time this acquisition happened, Carbon Black, and along with a bunch of other acquisitions, Platinum was one, uh, Intrinsic uh, was another one, and Bitfusion was also another one, where they were actually going to be doing the same thing to VMs. Does that ring a bell? Yes, it does. Uh, VMware has been making a concerted push into the security space, and now I think there it was, you know, VM mm. VM focused, but now they realize containers are where folks are going, and so they've got to be there as well. Yeah. So to me, this doesn't sound like anything too new. This sounds a bit like uh, there's lots of security things happening out there in the world, so we'd better talk about all the features that we've actually brought online over the last year or so. So we've got a press release out to highlight that VMware's got a security. So this doesn't feel new. So let me highlight what they're talking about anyway. Runtime cluster image scanning integrated alerts dashboard, Kubernetes visibility mapping, workload anomaly detection, egress and ingress security, aka service mesh, um, and then threat detection to allow customers to scan open ports for vulnerabilities. None of that sounds new to VMware. That sounds like security features that they've had for some time, like the ingress and egress security has been in NSX for a long time, which is their service mesh. Workload anomaly detection has been in VMware. So I guess what they're doing here is these features are here. They're just putting out a press release to say in the world of heightened security awareness that we've got going on around us, hey, we've got all these security features just in case you forgot. To my mind, what they're doing is saying we're protecting multiple layers of your application stack. So we're sort of outside at the data center edge. We've got uh, web application firewalls. We can do uh, service mesh inside your Kubernetes cluster to help you control what's going into and out of your cluster. And now we can actually uh, help protect you mm. at runtime when the container is actually up and running, which is sort of, I guess, the, the deepest part of the, the application stack they're getting into. Yeah. And all, all these features, I think, were previously announced for VMware ES, for hypervisors right, for ESX hypervisors. Mm -hmm. So, sure. you know, I think it's great that they're sort of highlighting the fact and sort of highlights a general issue that I think we've been having in the industry, which is because of subscription software, and we've talked about this before, because of subscription software, they just bring out new features as and when they're ready. But yes. there's no news as such, except for VMware, which tries to save things up for VMworld. And then if they announce this at VMworld, who know? There's just so much happening at VMworld. You just, <laughs> you know, it's kind of pointless. Um, so this feels like a bit of a, you know, don't forget us announcement. We've got all those things. 
I think so. And as I mentioned, you know, VMware, the whole Tanzu strategy is VMware recognizing that modern new applications are moving to containers. Uh, and so they want to make sure they are where their customers are headed. Uh, and this is part of that strategy. Mm -hmm. Anytime you attach security to anything, you're going to get some attention from people. Yeah, I think so. Uh, we have a link in the show note. If you want to read the press release yourself, we'll move on. Uh, starting April 4, Google employees are going to be expected to return to the office three days out of the week. Google's hoping this hybrid model will foster in-person collaboration while also providing employees with some flexibility because they can be home two days a week. Does it strike you as weird is that a company which is supposedly so committed to communicating via the internet and to use tools like Google Meet and, you know, conferencing tools and, and all those things can't do it. They, their internal organization is so bad that they want people in an office three days a week. Is, is that is that just do, me? Do as I say, not as I do. Yeah, it just feels like if you're an organization which is able to do collaborative programming where people check code into your you know, into your data, into your repository, your code repository, and, you know, mm -hmm, is, mm -hmm. is, is in-person collaboration really that necessary? Or is it an admission that Google's internal tools are so bad? So as, as many people like me say, like Google Meet is a trash fire. Google Docs is awful. It works. It's okay, but it's not great. You know, all those things are just so mediocre that they are insisting on going back to the office. And I think Part of the reason that companies are going back to the office is if you're stuck with second-rate tools like Teams or Google's, you know, version of that or WebEx, you probably need to go back to the office because you've got such substandard tools. Yeah, I'm going to put in a plug for Google Docs. I think it's great. I, I like using it. Um, so I think that's one of the places they've been successful. They have had less success with other business apps. Uh, and of course, we know <laughs> we've had a long-standing conversation about our feelings about Teams and so on. I think... You know, there was this mythology about, I don't remember which research lab it was, maybe a Bell Labs or something where, you know, an engineer and a physicist happened to bump into each other and have a conversation and that created a new product. And now I think ever since managers have latched onto that as people need to be in the same room for that kismet of uh, collaboration and insight. <laughs> mm. And that just sort of, that mythology just kind of drives the fact that, oh, we have to have people in the office. I think the other thing is that managers, when they can't see you, feel like they're not managing you and mm. therefore... What, what the heck are they doing? Why are they even getting paid? And that makes them antsy. And so they want to get bodies back in desks where they can watch them with their own two eyes. Which is, which is just such a disappointment. Like, it, you know, we are supposedly yes. technology yes. professionals and we should be able And it's also an admission that work is not actually work, is actually a certain amount of play and game time. <laughs> and people just need to be together to be able to work together, right? Well, that's true because part of the way that Google is trying to lure people back to the office is by saying, we're bringing back all the perks. We're going to have the cafes. We're going to have the free meals. We're going to have masseuses. Mm. So like, okay, am I, am I getting a massage or am I going to the office? What's yeah. happening? Here, come back to the office and you can have a massage. Why can't I just have it at home? Why don't you send them over? <laughs> right. <You know? laughs> Head on down to the cafe and, and kick back with a cappuccino for 45 That's minutes. That's right. I'll doctor to my local corner shop and get it. And then I wouldn't have to spend a hundred bucks getting to the office. But Right. You know, just anyway, I, I just the hypocrisy yeah. is a little a little on display, I think. And I, I don't want to overblow it. There's definitely value in people getting together as a team, but sure. three days a week feels, you know, like an admission that my my teams, you know, my teaming ability to work together is a bit uh, 
I, I will say, though, there are folks who do want to be in the office. Uh, and so, great, they can go back and, and have that office experience. Maybe for whatever reason, their home environment is not conducive to working. So being in the office helps them make that either work break or that even mental transition. Now, now I'm at the office and I'm going to do my office things and I can separate my work and my home life. That's fine. Um, but for those who want to work from home, I, I'm surprised that Google's demanding folks actually show up to the office. And I've started to notice uh, other tech companies now offer, using this as a recruitment strategy, like, hey, do you like permanent work from home? Come apply to us. Yeah, that's we right. We'd love yeah. to have you work from wherever you want. Yeah, I've, I've seen that several times. Uh, I've seen tweets and stuff in social media and LinkedIn, people going like, the fastest way to get rid of your employees is to force them back to the office. <laughs> for a certain type of employee, right? It's not true for everybody. Yes. And they're obviously, anyway, interesting that Google's sending people back to the office. I think the Hulk here is, is its collaboration and work group tools poor, so poor that coming back to the office is important? Or does Google have some sort of workflow or process or business process that where face-to-face -face is actually necessary? I'm not saying that face-to-face -face isn't valuable, but does it really have nope. to be three weeks, three days a week? That seems problematic. Right. Yeah. All right, links in the show notes if you want to read about it yourself. Uh, we'll take a quick break to tell you about one of our sponsors, Palo Alto Networks. They've launched the industry's first conference dedicated to SASE or Secure Access Service Edge. It's SASE Converge 2021. You can see an on-demand version of the event. You're going to hear from industry veterans, including Palo Alto Networks founder and CTO Nir Zook, Gartner VP Neil McDonald, and the godfather of SDN, Martin Casado. You can see Palo Alto's new Prisma Access 2.2 capabilities in action, get details on the impact of SASE technologies, and learn about forthcoming innovations. You can see it all at sasseconverge.paloaltonetworks.com. You show up and register, sasseconverge.paloaltonetworks.com. Back to the news. Broadcom reported financial results for its first fiscal quarter of 2022. The chipmaker took in $7.7 billion in revenue, up 16% year-over-year. They had a net income of $2.4 billion. That feels to me like it's in line. You would expect Broadcom against the backbone of silicon demand. Now, Broadcom, of course, yep. is a designer of chips, not a maker. So it relies on companies like Samsung uh, and TSMC to actually make the chips that they design. So they're a fabulous organization generally, and they're also a marketing organization able to control relationships with third parties who actually then include the chips in. But designing chips has been, is and remains a fairly specialist sort of a business and one that uh, is a is natural monopolies. So that is, it's a, a networking business. The bigger you get, the more effective you become. And these chips are incredibly sticky. So not surprising in a year where silicon demand is increasing and silicon is used in more things, it's able to increase at 16% year over year, which sounds like a lot, but not so much as when you look at, you know, we talked before about the growth of TSMC and the growth of silicon generally, which is more than 16%. So it's okay. Um, and for a big company to grow in a big way is a substantial thing, but they're not doing as good as the industry as a whole. Yeah, I was also surprised, I guess, because Broadcom has such an oversized role in the networking industry that it would be a bigger company, but revenue-wise, it's not as big as I had thought. Surprised by that 7.7 .7 billion number. No, when you design the chips, most of the money goes to the fab. <laughs> right. I guess so. like the, the goal here is to design a chip and then make sure customers don't go to somebody else's design. Yes. So, you know, if you look at revenues for companies like ARM or, you know, AMD or even Intel, like AMD is not a very large organization either um, because most of the money goes into the fab. And that's why TSMC is spending 30 billion and will take in right. like 100 billion in revenue per year because that's where the money is. So, yeah. 
Um, a, a quick note, breaking out sector by sector, the company's semiconductor side of the business took in $5.8 billion in revenue. It also has a software business, which brought in $1.8 billion, uh, which grew 5% year over year, that software business. And I believe that software business is basically Symantec and Computer Associates, which the company had acquired uh, the past couple of years. Yeah. And particularly in the enterprise, obviously, when they talk about the enterprises yeah. on fire, they're talking about fiber channel. They're talking about Ethernet NICs, and they're also talking about switching chips as well, which they're very big in. Right? Yeah. So looking forward to the next quarter, the CEO uh, did say, quote, the enterprise spending is on fire. So they're looking for also a very profitable second quarter as well. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on, uh, the carmaker Toyota had to shut down all 14 of its auto manufacturing plants in Japan for one day after a malware infection hit a supplier. That supplier was Kojima Industries. They provide parts for Toyota cars. Uh, Kojima Industries said the infection affected its ability to communicate with Toyota about parts orders. So Toyota just shut everything down for a day while Kojima Industries got itself in order. Yeah, so the reports here are in a lack of other information other than they all shut down. They didn't admit to anything. They just said cyber attack. Question is, what type of cyber attack? Was it a wiper? Was it ransomware? Was it what? The suggestions is that it was a ransomware, uh, and perhaps they've been able to, rec- to recover in a day. Is quite admirable if it was a significant enough, or maybe there was only one subsystem that was taken down. I I just also have to wonder more broadly if you can shut down fourteen auto manufacturing plants just because one supplier has a problem. Does just in time start to look like a business risk instead of a business strategy? Are we, yeah. are we there yet? And the answer is probably no. Yeah, we've, no. <laughs> no. I mean, we have talked about this before, but yeah, we're seeing strains appear in the just-in-time model when something like a simple, uh, not simple, but a malware infection can shut you down for an entire day. I guess uh, Toyota usually makes about 13,000 cars a day, and so those 13,000 cars just didn't get made. That's right. And it just strikes me that, you know, at some point these companies are going to have to reevaluate the just-in-time uh, business model and and have to think about, do they start holding some stock or, you know, yep. near just in time, <laughs> do you know what I mean? near real time or whatever. Uh, there's going to have, they're probably going to have to be reevaluating and starting to build bigger buffers around stocking. And, but that would require a very substantial change because many of these organizations would then require to build some sort of warehousing or supply right. depots. And they often right. don't have them. So their, their whole plants are based around the fact that everything arrives you know, enough stock arrives every day from the downstream suppliers to build just enough to build for the day that ahead, and there's no stock kept around. Um, and well, all you uh, startup folks out there, maybe warehousing as a service is a market to get into. <laughs> well, that's what Amazon is to some extent. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's true. Just yes. happens to be for retail goods and to consumers. But that's yes. right. Yeah, you could do that. Uh, and to wrap it up, there is no official confirmation on the type of malware attack, but the register is speculating it might have been the Emotet Trojan. It's a Trojan that targets corporations to, to leak or steal sensitive data. Uh, moving on, the satellite broadband provider Viasat was hit with a DDoS attack that disrupted service in Eastern Europe, including Ukraine. The company said it was experiencing partial outages of its internet service. Okay, so this is a little bit long, so you'll have to bear with me a little bit here, because I've always imagined satellites kind of work wherever they need to be working. but as it turns out, CarSat, which is the satellite that sits above uh, Europe, uh, which is run by the Viasat co- uh, company, and that satellite provides broadband access right across Europe, but also small areas of the Middle East and a few other places like Ireland and so forth, right? So if you were mm-hmm. in a regional area and you really wanted internet access or some sort of tele- some sort of communications, CarSat was one of the way. Now, this is a single large satellite that's in geosynchronous orbit 
And mostly the articles call it just internet, but now it's just a, a, it's funny how satellites that once were telecommunications are now just called gener- generically internet. Which is a little bit <laughs> TV, what's TV? TV, exactly. So, uh, and then we started to see unconfirmed reports suggesting that it's possible to disrupt a satellite with interference or jamming. So apparently a single large satellite like CarSat, which is parked in a single geosynchronous well-known orbit in the sky is actually quite vulnerable. So their speculation has been is that Russia has been uh, pointing some sort of jamming system directly towards the satellite so that any signals from the ground as they go up, because they're all quite in a narrow spectrum and the spectrum is shared across different areas. So it's a bit like Wi-Fi, you know, in uh, 802.11 when you have to say this is this is this A, B piece and this is the, the uh, range seven and this is range 11. So you don't have overlapping. That's how they do yeah. it for these satellites. And apparently what you can do is just, if you could, because you have software defined radios, just set up a dish, fire it at the antenna, and then you can disrupt the, the whole of the satellite for the whole of Northern Europe. And huh. that's what they think has happened. And there's also some speculation or some concern that if they sent a signal strong enough, it would actually blow the input stage. So because these satellites have to be able to cover such a large distance, the actual antenna is incredibly sensitive. It's used to picking up. But if you send a very strong signal to it and the, the analog overloads the, the antenna, it could actually blow the modem as where it comes off wow. the radio antenna. So, mm-hmm. so the suggestion is that this is what's happened in this case, that this satellite, because it's such an easy target, it's a single satellite, in a non in a geosynchronous orbit, it's in the same place fundamentally all the time, so it's very easy yep. to track. Yeah. Um, and then what they're doing, and we already know from various other things that jamming of geosynchronous satellites is common. So, for example, you see it quite often where Russia is actually jamming uh, the the mapping satellites, where it actually tracks you. You know, when you're moving around and your smartphone can tell you where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know that those can be blocked or spoofed or whatever. Um, and then, of course, the other side of this is that any sort of satellite like CarSat also has usually just one down station. So there's a downlink, and it's usually just one. So what, it said the satellite connection stopped working on Thursday, knocking out the remote uh, and had secondary effects. Apparently, there was a number of uh, wind turbines that are using CarSat to upload data. And so oh. there's a whole bunch of wind turbines that went down. So it's a really interesting story to suddenly realize that some of these older satellites, these big, large, expensive multi-ton satellites that are in space are actually quite vulnerable to attack, which has not historically been a scenario that we want to do, but it is a scenario, obviously, now when you're parked over the over Northern Europe with Russia and Ukraine uh, in trouble. Right. To have uh, one essentially single point of failure for communications in across Eastern Europe is mm-hmm. very dangerous and not a situation we want to be in, particularly now with the war going on. And of course, guess who's the winner out of this? It's Starlink and Iridium. These are the two distributed satellite networks. So Starlink, of course, is the one that's made all the press this week. The uh, it's you know Elon Musk is in a situation where the president of Ukraine sent out a tweet, "Can you help us?" And within 24 hours, um, they had enabled the satellites over the Ukraine and shipped a couple of truckload, a truckload at least of Starlink antennas to the Ukraine to give communications. And apparently, at this point, it is now the primary form of communication method for. Ukrainian officials to be able to get their messaging out, to be able to stay in communication with the rest of the world. Um, and of course, with Starlink, because they're shipping very small satellites, these are sort of the size of a, you know, sort of 12 inches by 12 inches type thing. Um, and there's so many of them, you can't actually block them because the antenna will track on to between five and nine satellites are active over the area at any time. That's currently, uh-huh, uh-huh. there'll be more 
as more Starlink satellites get launched. Um, and so if if there were, if you were to attack one of those satellites, then others would be able to pick up the signal. So at some level, even with the current situation with Starlink, so that is Starlink really doesn't have enough satellites which are covering the Ukraine yet. They hadn't intended to cover that much of it at this point, right? right? right. And so they'll be right. launching satellites now to get more coverage into the Ukraine because they have to be in specific orbits to be able to it's all very complicated and hard to explain in a in a verbal in a verbal way, but um, Starlink has a very high number. It's going to be up to four thousand in the low Earth orbit, and there'll possibly be a second layer. Uh, but at this point, uh, Starlink is only each satellite is only up and down, so there's no secondary sideways communication between the satellites. Eventually, they'll have lasers going between them to form a mesh. But at this point in time, uh, Starlink does rely on ground stations in Turkey, Lithuania, and Poland for the Ukrainian region. So each satellite, mm. you you send your message up to the satellite, the Starlink, and then it sends it to one of the three ground stations, which is in range at any point in time, and then your packets move out onto the internet. So that's a relatively distributed, relatively stable, relatively, it's it's got a high resistance to attack at this thing. Iridium is another one, which is the same, except they only have uh, 66 satellites currently in orbit covering the globe. So they also are sustaining communications, uh, satellite communication. So even though a legacy product, just interesting the way that works, something that uh, I, I didn't realize. And when I started going down the rabbit hole, started to realize that there's satellite and the satellite. <laughs> <laughs> it's the internet model of satellites. Yes. Uh, multiple points of connection instead of one big, mm. big satellite. So Starlink is going to be probably, you know, the dominant model, that small distributed constellation, because you can send up the satellites in small batches or large batches. So the Falcon uh -huh. 9 rocket can now ship somewhere between 40 and 50 Starlink satellites per launch. Uh, and they then, once it's launched, they get put into a, an, a, an initial orbit and then the satellites raise up to a final orbit into the synchronization. Some, sometimes, not all of them make it. Sometimes they just bump out of the rocket badly and end up burning up and coming back to the ground instead of these big satellites that we used to think of from years ago. And right. And then there's this intermediate thing where companies like Iridium actually have medium-sized satellites, but they have large numbers of them around. Uh, but it is worth understanding how that works. If you're going to use Starlink as part of your SD-WAN strategy, uh, some sort of uh, understanding of that might be worth reading into. And there's some links there uh, if you want to read more. All right. Uh, another quick break to tell you about our other sponsor today, IT Pro TV. You can start or grow your IT career with online training from IT Pro TV. And there's a special offer for Network Break listeners. You can sign up and save 30% off all plans. That's any plan. For instance, uh, did you know there are more than 500,000 open cybersecurity roles? You can become a CyberSec Pro with online training. It's never too late to start a new career in IT or move up the ladder. And IT Pro TV has you covered from CompTIA and Cisco to EC Council and Microsoft training. There's more than 5,800 hours of on-demand training. Engaging hosts present information in a talk show format. They're live every day and shows go studio to web in just 24 hours. Courses are conveniently listed by category, certification, and job role. And you can stream IT Pro TV's courses live and on-demand via Roku, Apple TV, PC, or iOS or Android apps. So learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash networkbreak for 30% off all plans. Use the promo code networkbreak at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash networkbreak, itpro.tv slash networkbreak. Use the promo code networkbreak at checkout and you'll save 30% off all plans. Okay, back to the news. Uh, tech companies are making public pronouncements about support for Ukraine and specific steps they're taking. For example, Cisco posted a blog about how its Talos business unit is directly operating security products for Ukraine customers. Uh, and Amazon CEO Andy Jassy said Amazon is using its logistics capabilities to get supplies to Ukraine and they've also offered cybersecurity help. 
which when I first read it, uh, my initial reaction was, oh, this is fantastic. Isn't this great? Didn't you think that, Drew? Didn't you think that was great? I mean, I'm always a little suspect when companies start talking about the things they're doing for just for the good of it. So, um, yeah, yeah I, I read it with a little bit of, yeah. I mean, yes, it's good that they're they're focusing on Ukraine and wanting to help, um, but there are also issues. There are also issues, and because the thing that strikes me about this is it's not like they've got another choice. Probably right at this point, we're <laughs> living through a point where um, there's a sea change in geopolitics. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has provoked opposition from nearly all governments, like even yeah. China's issuing conflicting on-the-fence-ish type of announcements when part of China right. wants to ally with Russia to take advantage of this business situation where it could do business with Russia on very beneficial terms to China. In other words, screw the Russians over. Um, but, you know, the bulk is that most, most of the world governments are now directly opposed to what Russia is doing, and even Russian allies are not coming out and publicly supporting them. And the the range of banking and business sanctions have a direct impact. But the interesting part about the secondary impact is that even if these companies wanted to do business with Russia, they can't, right? So in the past, what we've seen these companies say is, we're customer first. We'll give our customers whatever it is that they want, you know, that sort of stuff. And right. now what you're seeing is these big companies actually come out against it because I think they're under pressure from the governments of the world, the various governments, particularly the ones where their customers are in, like the US government, the UK, the, the EU. Yes. You know, they're under pressure to say, are you with us or are you against us? And a lot of these blog posts stink like, well, it doesn't really matter because we're never going to do business with Russia for the foreseeable future. So we're pledging support for Ukraine. So color me sense. That's the thing. It's kind of like, yeah, we're not, it's, we don't have a choice anyway, because sanctions, you know, banking sanctions, uh, export sanctions prevent us from doing business with these companies anyway. So we might as well hustle out a press release yep. uh, to make it sound like we're, we're on the side of Yeah, right. We don't want to be Facebook saying, no, 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 we don't block anything, <laughs> including Russian counter, you know, disinformation and so forth. Right. Uh, that's definitely not the path to success. I think Facebook's making a big blunder here. Um, yeah. But I do also note that uh, it is good, though, that companies, Cisco in particular, is saying they're bringing their advanced product features to create Ukraine-specific protections based on intelligence that we have received. So if you were running a Ukraine network right about now, knowing that Cisco is behind you and giving you support and advice against the specific threats that you're facing is a good thing. But keep in mind that Cisco Talos, which is a highly respectable and trustworthy security organization, by the way, security Cisco's Talos division is is really well respected in the security industry, will be gathering data on those cyber attacks to feed its own system. So there's an element of self-interest here of win-win. Cisco gets a benefit of actually gathering data about cyber attacks, like what are the sort of military cyber attacks. And so right. it's got its own reasons for being engaged there. And the fact that they're helping the Ukraines is also as much a result of the political environment where it's like they can't not, right? It's their customers, right. you know, whatever. Uh, but I'm very pleased to see that Cisco's saying that it's doing something a little bit extra. It doesn't give away too much about what that is, but doing something a little bit extra to give support to customers in the UK, in the Ukraine who are running Cisco technologies. Yeah, I want to make sure I separate individual employees within an organization who may actually be taking extra steps to help out Ukraine and feel passionate about wanting to support mm -hmm. the Ukraine people. Uh, and that's great, uh, but the there's also the behavior of the corporations they work for, which are corporate entities publicly traded that have a fiduciary duty to increase shareholder value, and that's their primary function. So there's always a push and pull there. I also, <laughs> you mentioned in, in the blog that they wrote, which is a good blog about you know individuals inside Cisco making the extra effort to really help out Ukraine. 
Uh, somebody included that line. We're taking advantage of advanced product features. Like, did you have to put that advanced <laughs> product features in there? This, this this is not a marketing opportunity. Why why is that? There? I don't have Just a high opinion out. of the the people who do the editing at Cisco's blogging. It it always tends to be a little bit uh, hard to read. I, I do find it difficult yes. to read Cisco's feed because it obviously goes through a team of editors or writers or something and and gets nerfed. Um, which well, that's what drives me crazy. There must have been fifty pairs of eyeballs on this one because it must be particularly sensitive mm -hmm. because they're dealing with a sensitive topic. And still, that phrase touting advanced product features mm -hmm. made it through when this should not be the marketing opportunity where you do that yeah. kind of thing. It's not a press release. Uh, one of the things to note at this point is we have covered the Ukraine Russia thing a little bit, and that's not because um, we want to cover that as a war. What we're trying to do is find the angles that relate to technology, and it is key here to say that there is the, the cybersecurity angle when. The initial aspects of the engagement come out, there was a lot of discussion around, would this be a cyber war? Would we see the Russians attacking outside of the space into foreign countries? And so far, not really, not yet, not yet right. or not going to. It's not 100% clear, and I wouldn't like to make any sort of military, but the suggestion might be is that Russia wants to keep it uh, in the sphere of the Ukraine. It doesn't want to start provoking the, um, op the, the, the wider forces, the NATO, doesn't want to provoke the US into doing something. So I think they haven't engaged a cyber war yet, and they may never, because that might cause an escalation of the conflict, which might be counter to the goals, if indeed they do have any cybersecurity capability. Because as we're seeing in the Ukraine, there seems to be some amount of evidence to, to suggest that the Russian military effort isn't coming off. There doesn't appear to be well-run or well-resourced. And if that's true of their cybersecurity effort, maybe they don't have it. Um, we don't know. But certainly what we're doing here is the news of the week this week would suggest that many vendors have put their announcements on hold. Um, there's not a lot of news, not a lot of product announcements. So It was a very thin week, yes. Very thin week. Mm -hmm. So I'm sort of sitting here thinking, have we seen a lot of stuff stop because of the war, because of this conflict and people are taking plans and, or is it just a quiet period? It is March Usually this is a quiet month as the vendors start to save up all their announcements, start to constipate their marketing pipeline. And, right, you know, as they run into conferences. Spring events. Yeah, yes. spring events. Yeah. So maybe that's what's happening. So I, I just wanted to flag that. We're not here to make a commentary about the conflict that's happening or the war that's happening in the Ukraine. But what we are doing is picking up off the news that's there and, and highlighting issues that you may not have thought of before. All right. Well, that does wrap up our news portion of the conversation. Stick around for our Tech Byte show with Aruba customer Alabama One. They're a credit union deploying SD-WAN and branch networking. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're talking about a real-world SD-WAN deployment. Our sponsor is Aruba. We're talking with Aruba customer Alabama One. That's a credit union. And our guest is Bobby Umfrist II. He is Director of IT and Operations at Alabama One. Uh, Bobby, welcome to the podcast. To get us started, can you give us a brief overview of what your network looked like before you decided to go to Aruba Edge Connect and Aruba's Edge Services platform or ESP? Sure. Our previous uh, network platform was MPLS-based, so with one of the big telecom providers out there. And I think everybody's kind of familiar with the MPLS networks and kind of some of the uh, uh, challenges and obstacles that we have with those. I can already hear Greg winding up to get on top of MPLS and, and ride it into the dirt. <laughs> well, I think the telcos have done what's best for telcos, and we've said that before, whereas customers haven't been able to sort of it's been an imbalance. So you only could get what the telcos gave you. And I think the key here is that what you're supporting here with a financial institution, with a banking, is you just want to have as much bandwidth as possible to support the services. But I bet your bandwidth is in remote locations. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. We do have a, a lot of rural locations. Getting uh, that connectivity into those locations, a lot of times we, we're actually having to 
rely on that carrier, but it was a different last mile carrier. So that put another layer of complexity on uh, getting those solutions in there. So you were looking at SD-WAN to help you migrate off MPLS and get onto broadband. Was that the idea? Yes, uh, get into broadband and also to provide that redundancy or, uh, you know, failover capabilities in those remote locations. Right, those dual circuits you can use. Yeah, okay. So that's common. A lot of people take up SD-WAN because they might only be able to afford one MPLS set connection, but you can have two or three broadband connections and get double the bandwidth for one third the price or something. Yes. When we started researching uh, what our options were there, we found out that we could put in a a commodity fiber internet connection along with either a cable or LTE connection for Mm. less than about half the price we were paying for the MPLS connection with maybe less than a third of the bandwidth that we had originally there. Let me ask the ROI question up front here. It's not something we always talk about up front, but I think it's important here. That means most likely that you got ROI in what, a year or less? Yes. In the first year, we were able to realize the uh, return on investment there, which was uh, you know, great that we could see that, you know, all right, we're putting this solution in, we're going to get more bandwidth, we're going to get redundancy, things like that, that we were needing at the time. And then mm. to see that the product was going to pay for itself in that first year was amazing. It, it, it's too good to be true when you come at it, doesn't it? Sometimes? Yes. Yes. Uh, it feels when, like when, you win and you win and you win. And it, it, Yeah. When I brought it to our CTO, he was like, are you sure those numbers are correct? I'm like, I said, Here, here's my spreadsheet. I said, you can look at it yourself. And he was like, <laughs> Well, it's, it's a no-brainer. <laughs> so how many locations are we talking about? That time we had about 15 locations. Okay. So when you're looking at the SD-WAN market, how did you settle on Aruba? Because there are a lot of choices out there. Uh, sure. Settling on Aruba, um, the technology partner that we were working with kind of did a proof of concept with the previous IT group that was there before I started Alabama One. Uh, I kind of did some research myself on that. Uh, I also had... Uh, Heard them on the Packet Pushers uh, podcast um, previously. And um, so kind of listening to some of those and also just getting out there and kind of seeing some real world use cases of and how people were happy with the product and all that. And, you know, Mm -hmm. looking at at that uh, platform at the time, there were a lot less complaints with that platform. And that's what we were wanting to get to was that, you know, we didn't want to have to constantly babysit a platform that, you know, as we put it in, you know, we want it to be bulletproof, uh, you know, have a good experience and all that. Because the last thing we want to do is say, all right, it's, co- it's saving us a lot of money, but we got a lot of problems with it. So that's right. that's the last thing that we wanted. Right. Okay. So you're looking at the operational aspect of it as well as the ROI. Yes. I bet you get more sleep because that automated yes. failover of SD-WAN is, is that right? Yes. You know, there's a lot of times that, especially in some of those rural areas, that there'll be a fiber cut uh, mm. and it would uh, seamlessly fail over to LTE or a cable connection. And, you know, the branch goes along their business. We, we get the notification that the circuit is down. We notify the telecom provider in that area and they're like, yeah, there's a fiber cut. It'll be back up mm-hmm. in a few hours. I'm like, all right, well, no, no big rush on that. So it's <laughs> nice that, you know, as soon as that fiber comes back online, it's they just have the additional added bandwidth at that site. Now, I, I used to support networks in rural Australia and that right there is a pay rise. What yeah. I would have done to be able to not have to babysit telcos who are quite obviously not all that worried about an outage and they'd get to it when they get to it. I think that's a big thing. But mm-hmm. What about provisioning of new locations? One of the things that I've talked to lots of people about with SD-WAN is that ability to turn up a location quick. Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, actually we had a, a new site that we had purchased from a uh, another financial institution that were moving out of that market. Uh, we came in there, uh, this was actually around Labor Day weekend uh, last year for us. We came in there on a Thursday. Uh, we'd mm. already had a uh, cable circuit dropped in earlier that week. Mm-hmm. We came in on Thursday as the previous uh, financial institution was moving out, we were moving our equipment in. And mm. that following Tuesday, we opened up as Alabama One. Wow. Uh, our uh, president and CEO was like, I've never seen something turn around that quickly. 
and we were like, this, this, see, this is a good solution that we put in. And he's like, we couldn't have done it without that. I said, if we had the previous MPLS provider, I said, we'd be waiting three months for a circuit to be dropped in here. And, that, and that's not what you need with your sort of business, that rural banking business. Yes. You want to be on the ground, moving locations quickly, finding customers, being where customers are and changing to, you know, as other banks recede, you move in, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, ju- just in the uh, last uh, half of the year, last year, we deployed uh, four new branches. Uh, mm. And it was kind of like one after the other every month uh, that we were deploying. So it, w- it was nice to be able to get in there. And we had a lot of times we could stage the equipment uh, in our corporate office, have our mm. desktop team kind of test everything that was going to be deployed at the branch and then pick everything up and move it into the branch and install it. And uh, so, 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 that, so that raises the topic of the breadth of the Aruba solution, because are you using it for the branch networking as well? Yes. Uh, we have Aruba access points and uh, access switching in the branches as well. Okay, so you're getting Aruba for Wi-Fi, for networking, and for SD-WAN all in one package. Yes. Okay, and this is where I guess the Edge Services platform comes in then because you're managing it all, I presume, from one kind of console? That's correct. What, what does that mean for you operationally? Because I am going to assume that you probably don't have IT staff at every location. Uh, that's correct. And with, with some of the sites being rural, it's, um, you know, uh, you know, it's not just a 20-minute drive down the road to go fix a problem. <laughs> um, but, you know, being able to go out and kind of troubleshoot some of those issues remotely um, and if there is something that we can have, uh, you know, if the desktop staff is going out there, we can say, hey, do this for us. Uh, so it's something that uh, it's a lot less of uh, a steep learning curve for uh, some of our new team members. Um, but also that with the templates within uh, the SD-WAN product, when we deploy a site, we know that it's being deployed the correct way each time. And there's not, you know, there's, you know, usually when we got with MPLS, there's one piece that was left out or the telecom provider didn't have something correct. So and we had to adjust for that. So with this solution, we're able to put it in a put in a new branch the right way every time. And I presume that's important because as a financial institution, you've got some significant security, privacy, and compliance requirements that you have to meet. That's correct. Too. So are you also using some of the branch security features? So one of the things that I've, you know, we've talked about with Aruba over the years is that clear pass for network access control and that ability to have security in the bench. Whereas before, you know, with the old MPLS and put a switch in and cross your fingers sort of thing, it, it, I think it's a pretty radical difference too. Yes, uh, we use ClearPass uh, in the branch. Uh, we had it mainly set up for our wired uh, devices to begin with. Um, mm. Here in the past couple of years, when we finally deployed a enterprise wireless solution across all of our branch footprint. Um, mm. But, you know, being able to have that uh, security where someone couldn't just go into a lobby to an Ethernet port and plug in and get on our network. Um, you know, we have, we've had some new people join our IT group and they hadn't seen anything like that before. And they're like, we're just used to plugging into a port and being able to go. And I'm like, not, not in this institution, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do that in banking. And, but in a lot of yep. banking institutions like yours, I, I remember that branch managers are often shared between multiple branches and they move around from one to the other or resources, you know, tellers and so forth. You might only, only open up in a location for two days a week. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, setting up, tearing down, moving around was actually very difficult. And now it's much more simplified. Yes. Were you offering Wi-Fi at branches before you brought in Aruba? Uh, we were not. So I started there in the credit union uh, back in uh, 2018. And, uh, you know, it was kind of amazing it, in 2018 that we didn't have a wireless solution or, or an enterprise wireless solution uh, mm-hmm. deployed across the branch footprint. And, you know, people would come into a meeting and, and pop out a, you know, a hotspot and, and connect to it and then VPN back into the network. And I'm like, this, this isn't uh, the, the right solution that we need right here. I said, where the, the amount that we were spending in hotspots and data plans, I said, uh, we probably could have bought a, a few hotspots to throw up in here. And uh, I'd had good experience with the Aruba products and previous employers. And, uh, you know, when we came to our uh, technology partner, uh, Verstore, 
um, we came, you know, kind of said, you know, we want to go look at the Aruba products and uh, that's how we got started there. So does having now Wi-Fi and SD-WAN at branches let you do new things, offer new services to customers? Yeah, so we have, uh, uh, you know, multiple other solutions that we offer outside of your typical uh, banking uh, products. We also have a uh, insurance and wealth advisory teams as well. Uh, so they're able to go into those uh, more rural branches and, you know, they're at this branch a couple of days out of the week and then they can go to another one. Uh, but they're able to set up shop in just about any site if they wanted to. Hmm. Okay. And, and what about things like new services? So I've seen a lot of banking institutions move to this. You don't have a teller location. You just have people walking the floor with iPads and that type of stuff. Is, it, is that something in your, in your line? Yes. Um, so we're actually, we have a, a, a test site that we kind of test some of those uh, features out before we start rolling them out to the other branches. But that's uh, something that we're going down the path of right now is that it's yeah. not just a typical, you know, teller line that you go up to and here's your money. Thanks. See you next time that you want something else. Uh, but it's more of a, a self-service type machine. And then we have member service reps that can come up and help and talk to you about new services that we're offering that you may not necessarily know about that if you're just talking to a teller wanting to withdraw a few hundred bucks or, you know, deposit money. Are you at all worried about having, you know, sort of put all of your eggs into one vendor's basket? No, not at this time. When the solution works as well as it does, um, we've gotten a lot of people to kind of, um, you know, really learn the product. Um, so being able to kind of troubleshoot and know um, what's to be expected and how things should operate uh, I think is one thing, but also, you know, when you put in a solution, it just works the way it has here. Um, you know, there's not really a need to kind of say, all right, let's try to piece together 12 different vendors mm-hmm. and try to make them all talk together. Right, yeah, because okay. It's easy to forget, Drew, that a lot of times in the old networks, we didn't have good visibility tools. We didn't have monitor. We had network monitoring for simple stuff like router up, router down, bandwidth up, bandwidth down. That's about it. But now with the Aruba Central, you actually got a lot more visibility into what's happening. And the SD-WAN actually gives you insights into the traffic and the packets and the security tooling, like the NAC actually lets you do a whole bunch of segmentation as well, right at the edge. Are those sorts of things on your mind? Uh, yes. Um, so being, being able to do some of that. So like, for instance, our, our guest Wi-Fi uh, within the branch uh, footprint, um, those leave our silver, uh, the Aruba platform directly. Um, so we don't backhaul that guest Wi-Fi traffic because we're not interested in inspecting that traffic. But right, corporate right. traffic, yeah. ATM traffic, things like that get backhauled into. So, you know, being able to make that decision about, you know, what type of traffic this is, should it leave the Internet connection directly there or be backhauled in the corporate office oh. or into the data center, uh, you know, is some, uh, how we look at, you know, uh, classifying that traffic. Yes, the split tunneling really makes a big difference, makes it more practical than ever before. Yes. Yeah. And I know that's a simple thing, but, and it's almost like table stakes these days, but I I think one of the keys here for you, and I'd like to get your take, is this combination of SD-WAN with the branch networking would be the, would be a really key advantage because now you've actually got a lot of actual network security at the branch combined with the desktop security to make you feel more confident in this modern environment. Yes. It's, it's a lot different from the old MPLS style networks. Um, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, some some of these you're relying on the telecom provider to kind of provide some of that security to segment uh, your traffic from other uh, customers of theirs. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, interestingly, um, uh, working at our previous employer, we had an, uh, a situation where uh, we was doing some consultant work for a bank, and they had their MPLS network exposed to another bank with the same name. And the telecom mm-hmm. provider was like, "We don't know how that happened." 
And I'm like, well, we're seeing their computers on this other network. How is oh, that no. supposed to be happening <laughs> in your segmenting on your side? <laughs> so it, like, it does sound too good to be true, right? You deployed it, you bought this technology, got ROI in less than 12 months. The president actually knows who you are because you're making a difference to his life. It sounds like you're in a good run. Yes. What about uh, employees, uh, your end users? Do, have they noticed a difference? Or, I mean, another way to look at that is if, if they're not complaining, then everything's good. Yeah. So uh, previously, a lot of our branch sites were running at about a 10 meg MPLS connection. Mm-hmm. So with the provider uh, that we were using at the time, uh, they were segmenting or VLANing that traffic from their side. So it was seven megs for data, uh, two megs for voice traffic and one meg for ATM traffic. Well, if you wasn't using ATM or voice traffic, uh, those VLANs, you couldn't make advantage, take advantage of that extra three megs of bandwidth. Right, right. right. And also having uh, security cameras in the branches and all that, if somebody from corporate started to pull in uh, video footage, it would further hamper their uh, ability to kind of communicate back to the data center. Uh, so once we started deploying SD-WAN, uh, we started dropping in minimum 20 meg fiber uh, connections along with a cable connection. Uh, and then as you know, bandwidth kind of drops in those commodity fiber connections, you know, next year we get a, a 50 meg connection for the same price we were paying for the 20. So, you know, being able to drop in that extra bandwidth and plus, you know, everybody's using Zoom and some type of Teams or video type yep. of solution nowadays, being able to, uh, you know, fully uh, take advantage of that and not say, hey, only, only one or two people here can be on a Zoom at a time, you know, kind of really uh, ups what you can do in the branch. Absolutely. I can't imagine having to tell folks, okay, we, we can only have two people on the Zoom call because we don't have the bandwidth for it. That would be yeah. <laughs> some race hackles. <laughs> All right. Well, that does uh, wrap up our time. If you want to find out more about Aruba Networks, just head on over to arubanetworks.com. That's arubanetworks.com. Uh, Bobby, thank you for joining us. I had a really good time with this conversation. Uh, and as always, thanks to Aruba for being a sponsor and thanks you for being a listener. If you like this episode, you can find it and many more fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.